0: This is Trep Wire with a special podcast, The Economic Impact of COVID-19 on CRE Finance from the academic point of view. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director and Joe McBride, Head of CRE Finance. And joining us today are Dr. David Hartzell, Director of the Leonard Wood Center for Real Estate Studies at UNC and Caroline O'Neill, full-time MBA student at UNC Keenan flagler Business School and manager of their student-run PE fund. You guys are very qualified. <laughs> welcome to you
1: both. Thank you very much, glad to be here.
0: Thank you. Give us, give us a quick overview of your backgrounds if you wouldn't mind, Professor Hartzell, let's start with you.
1: Sure, that's, that sounds good. I'm originally from Wilmington, Delaware, I went to the University of Delaware, got two degrees there I worked in uh, D.C. for the Urban Institute researching housing policy for a few years and then came back to UNC where I got a Ph.D. in finance under the legendary Mike Miles, who I'm sure many of your listeners know. Uh, From here, I went to teach at the University of Texas for about a year and a half and was called by the sirens of Wall Street when I went to work for Louis Ranieri at uh, Solomon Brothers back in the late 80s. I was there for a couple of years and then was able to stay with them for about five years, but moved back to Chapel Hill where I became a faculty member in 1988, uh, which if you do the math, that makes this my 33rd year here at uh, the great University of North Carolina.
0: Wow, that's great. Caroline,
2: how about you? Thanks, Martha. My name is Caroline O'Neill and I'm originally from Charleston, South Carolina. I got my undergrad degree at the University of Georgia and then joined Wells Fargo out of school. I spent about eight years there, the first four in the commercial banking side, and then transitioned to the real estate lending group at Wells in DC. And I I decided to come back to UNC based on the, the real estate program that Dave has already briefly highlighted and I'm excited to be here today. So UNC is
0: currently completely online. Caroline, first with you, how is that going? Everything is obviously virtual.
2: It is, that's right. All of our classes are, are through Zoom. For the MBA program, we are synchronous, so we are live, but Zoom as opposed to asynchronous. And it's gone well. I think the school had a great MBA online platform to quickly adjust. I, I think our group for the full-time in-person MBAs, we, we made that decision to come back in person, so it's, it's not the ideal scenario. Obviously, we would prefer to be in-person, but I think given... environment that everybody's facing. The school has done a great job to help us transition and and still get the most out of our classes that we possibly can.
0: And Professor Hartzer, we've had multiple professors on our podcast and they give mixed reviews to this virtual environment. What do you think?
1: You know, I I have told my classes that I think it's gone both shockingly and surprisingly well uh, in our experience just a, a quick story. We were supposed to go, I was, Carolyn was one of 25 MBAs that was supposed to go to Peru and Ecuador with me on March 7th, uh, for two weeks to on a real estate global immersion elective. Uh, it got canceled on March 5th at the time, which we thought, uh, was not a great decision because we were all ready to go, uh, obviously did not go. So over spring break, we were told we'd have to ramp up to, uh, the zoom world, which we did. And, uh, I taught a class to Carolyn and her classmates in the second half of the spring semester, which, again, surprisingly, went, I think, extremely well. Carolyn hopefully would agree with me. And, uh, you know, then through the summer and into the fall, we've been fully virtual, uh, hoping to be back in, in actual class in January. Uh, But over the last uh, nine months, uh, or the nine months that we will be virtual, uh, I've been actually somewhat pleased with the way it's gone.
0: And before the pandemic, real estate students like Caroline were entering a very hot job market. In fact, there was an article where you were quoted uh, in Financial Times about that. How are students now preparing for a post-pandemic job market?
1: You know, I, I would... I don't mean this in a, in, a, in a wise guy way, but in some sense, we're preparing the same way as we always have. Uh, you know, the fundamentals are always critical to understanding real estate. We've used tried and true proven analytical techniques for many, many years. And the key is to use those techniques and the fundamentals to develop intuition and experience as best as we can in the two years that our students are here. Uh, so in doing that, We try to expose our students to a tremendous number of decision makers, uh, either simulated or through a case or actual decision makers, where we put the students in the shoes of of the decision makers, uh, as well as a significant amount of extracurricular activities, where we try to, again, provide an education and experiences such that when they do take their first jobs or when they do take their internships, they can hit the ground running. Uh, so in terms of preparation, I'd say, you know, again, it's, all, it's pretty much uh, business as usual. Uh, obviously, the job market's changed a little bit just in terms of uh, the number and the type in terms of real or virtual uh, jobs, uh, which will have an impact going forward.
3: It's interesting. We came upon the uh, UNC program through one of our listeners to our weekly podcast who pointed out some of your um, very innovative programs, letting students manage money and so forth. Um, So we're grateful to that listener for, for throwing you our way. And uh, it's a great opportunity to hear an alternative point of view uh, through the podcast over time. We've heard from uh, appraisers and special servicers and, and so forth. And, and this is a great opportunity for us to see and hear from those that, uh, perhaps we're at the cutting edge of, of new data sets and new research and new ways to, to look at things. So we're looking forward to the, the conversation today. I would say uh, the professor talks about doing the same things that you've always done,
4: uh, which makes a lot of sense. But as someone who uh, is living life in corporate America during COVID, I think you're doing a great job preparing people because all you do is sit in front of a computer screen for 12 hours a day on Zoom. So if you're doing that uh, for your students then,
3: uh, and you're giving them the knowledge, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone there. Going back to the funds, uh, Professor, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a sense of how that began, uh, how it works? How do you give students the, the driving wheel, um, the steering wheel, and what's involved in the entire program?
1: That sounds good. You know, we first started thinking about doing something like a real real estate private equity fund back in 2005. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were met with uh, a tremendous uh, number of hurdles and roadblocks from obviously the university administration in terms of the legal side, as well as just the idea of doing something like this. Uh, It took two, two years or a little more to get approval for the first fund. Uh, which we raised in 2007. Um, We've since done three other funds. So we've had a total of four funds with the last one uh, basically raised in 2018. Uh, Overall, we've raised $12.2 million in four funds. Uh, To be honest, when we first started it, nobody really understood what we were doing. Because we were taking real capital from real investors to invest in real real estate deals. Uh, And with the the student managers having as much control as possible to be able to uh, source deals, uh, do the due diligence, underwrite deals, do asset management, report to investors, uh, deal with auditors and lawyers and so on. Uh, which again was a, a stretch for many investors. So, our first fund was mostly friends and uh, alums of our program. Uh, not that we had to twist any arms, but uh, they were uh, certainly willing investors. And now, since then, with our four, the remaining three funds. I'd say that based on the notoriety and the reputation of our funds, both the deal sourcing base has increased, which is great, and uh, as has the number of unaffiliated investors, let's say, in the sense that they're not friends or they're not uh, alums of our program. So so it's kind of cool because now we can say, since we started in 2007, did a few deals early on, Uh, We're a cycle-tested private equity real estate fund, Uh, haven't haven't been in existence since then.
3: And soon you may be too (laughs) cycle-tested, right? Uh, You can make that claim, hopefully, um, in a year and not in four years. And, um, you know, hopefully that vaccine comes through and, and we're seeing the end of this cycle sooner rather than later. And you can make that claim.
0: Caroline, as an MBA student, you manage the fund that's supervised by Professor Hartzell, who's kind of like your chairman. Give us a little bit of some background and probably more importantly, how it's performing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we are a group of eight MBAs and three undergrads right now managing fund fund. The funds two, three, and four that are currently active, as Dave mentioned, fund one is fully realized. So we are responsible for deal sourcing and asset management. Those have been our two main focuses right now. And then as we move into the spring, I think we'll get started talking about fundraising for fund five. But in terms of the day-to-day responsibilities, we create deal teams, manage our existing assets, And then also work with prospective sponsors to find new deals to invest in. And so it's been been an interesting process since March. We were pencils down for a little while, just trying to let the market settle and figure out what uh, investment opportunities were really out there. And and just lack of certainty in pricing led us just to take a pause. Um, We've been back fully engaged on the deal sourcing front since I would say early August and have looked at 14 or 15 deals, uh, ones that we've been interested in and for various reasons and, and others that we just felt like weren't a good fit for us. Uh, but it's it's definitely, I think, the hallmark of the Kenan-Flagler education. The, the primary focus of the fund is the educational experience. But, but at the same time, as Dave mentioned, we are raising capital from outside investors. And so we do have a fiduciary responsibility to deliver returns to our investors. So I think it's a great balance of, and Dave does a great job of this, of letting us take as much uh, rain as possible, but kind of keeping us in the guardrails and, and using his prior experience to, to keep us on track and ask the right probing questions.
3: So when you come back to pricing, you know, from our perspective, it, it seems like there's no deals to be had per se in the multifamily space. The pricing has remained very firm. That has eluded uh, a lot of the problems that we've seen, the messiness in the hotel space, and the retail space. Is that fair from your perspective or do you see it differently?
2: That's interesting because historically we have been heavily weighted towards multifamily investments. So I'd say we, as a fund have been about 45% allocated to multifamily. And so we have sort of come back to the table and said, okay, we were historically 45% multifamily. We were also invested in office and retail and hospitality. So now maybe those investments aren't as attractive. So how do we recalibrate? Do we sort of double down on the multifamily assets and increase our exposure there? And I think we actually have seen a lot of multifamily opportunities. So I, I don't necessarily agree that There aren't opportunities to be had I think maybe it's still going into quasi tertiary markets so markets that have a really strong fundamental uh, base and I think we've seen cities that have been very resistant in terms of the operators have been strong on the collection front and so those maybe long-term family owners are now looking for an exit in this market. Uh, so I think we, we actually have seen of the 14 or 15 deals that we've looked at, we've, I would say probably 10 of those have been on the multifamily front.
3: And on the multifamily front, are you still seeing cap rates that were similar to what they were you know, pre-pandemic, or has there been a blowout in, in spreads um, from your perspective?
2: No, I think from our perspective, we've seen a, just steady cap rates, if, if not any, you know, a slight decrease. I think as people want to shift towards more stable asset classes and it, maybe you've seen a COVID discount in the office space or in the hospitality space. But I don't think in the multifamily space, you've really seen that. If, if anything, I think it's gone in the opposite direction.
3: And before I turn it over to Joe to let him get a word in edgewise, let me ask one more question about the existing portfolio. You know, the one thing we're concerned about as um, data consumers is the drip, drip, drip of occupancy falling month over month by a percent or two um, for existing portfolios. Later this week, we're gonna write about um, a Houston complex where we saw about a seven or 8% drop in occupancy between year end and June, which kind of reflects that drip, drip, drip of, of people moving home or leaving the market or leaving the workforce. Uh, how does your portfolio look in in that regard, and and how do you feel about occupancy holding up, um, you know, perhaps over the next year?
2: I think that's a great question, and I think so far what we've seen, you know, sort of second quarter reporting, everything has held strong. I think the real question that we're all asking is what is that going to look like as of nine thirty, which we'll expect to hear in the next ten or fifteen days from from our sponsors. So I, I think it's a little bit of a question mark at this point, just cause we don't have the data yet, but, but I expect that at least for our portfolio of assets that it will, it will be stable um, from where it was in second quarter. But as the, as you know, the government stimulus has run out, there might be a slight decrease in, in terms of occupancy across the board.
4: Yeah, Manus is, this is a three cup of coffee day for Manis. we can tell already. Uh, If you guys are, if you guys are long-time listeners, you know, that's, that's, I said with love, um, forget about COVID for a minute, Caroline. So, um, when you're out there raising funds or when you're looking at deals, give us a sense of your, you know, kind of target return levels, your geographic focus, property types. Is it all stabilized as, or do you do any sort of value add stuff or kind of what's your niche in uh in the investment?
2: Yeah, that's a great question and probably a helpful place to start. So, we are invested across all asset classes. So, we have investments multifamily, office, hotel, retail, self storage, uh, office. We are invested across the country. So, we are pretty geographically and product type agnostic. Uh, as I mentioned, heavily weighted towards multifamily historically, but as we've sort of expanded our sponsor network, that has, that allocation has decreased. Uh, so we do a mix of development, value add. Uh, we do target sort of mid t- mid to high teens deal level returns. And so I think you're seeing that the deals are a, a little bit harder to, to find on the LP side at this point, but we, we've kind of come together as a group and said, okay, back to my point about multifamily allocation. So what other asset classes do we want to be invested in? Because we do have the rain, the free reign to go and, and find new asset classes that we really want to learn more about and want to find new sponsors to invest with. And so we similar to other investors have explored single family rental, life sciences, medical office. Uh, and so we're, we're doing sort of a, a broader deep dive into different asset classes that we haven't historically been allocated to.
4: So we, we heard somebody say this recently. I don't think it was on the podcast, but uh, the real estate that's doing really well right now is are the places that don't need people. Uh, so cold storage, data centers, distribution centers, those types of things, which is kind of funny, given the fact that, you know, usually if you're investing in real estate, the the biggest Indicator of performance is how many people are in your property, right? On a
3: day-to-day basis. So uh, interesting going out into other areas. Do you ever see yourself um, investing in a distress situation where you look for opportunities where borrowers have um, thrown in the towel, the special servicer has taken over a property as REO, and you come in as somebody to either lease it back up or put some capital into it to transition it back to a performing asset?
2: Definitely, I think we, so we've created sort of four different groups to do a, a deep dive into these new asset classes. And one of the buckets that we're focusing on is debt and sort of a distressed um, distress platform and, and how do we best position ourselves to take advantage of that dislocation in the market. So I do think it's a great opportunity. I'm not saying we've, we've fully gotten there yet or identified specific opportunities, but it is something that, that we're definitely interested and open to.
3: It certainly seems like the golden age is coming for that part of the market. So it seems like as certain things dry up, um, perhaps in the multifamily sector because it's so safe right now or considered safe. You know, this becomes the uh, the target for those looking for richer uh, richer returns. Um, as somebody who uh, looks at a lot of data, looks at a lot of opportunities, and uh, works under Professor Hartzell, can you tell us a little bit about? Um, perhaps non-traditional data sources that you look at, non-traditional ways of looking at the data, um, something that may come from the perspective um, of somebody who's fairly new, not that new, of course, you've been at Wells Fargo for a long time and, and uh, Professor Hartzell has been around um, really since the dawn of securization with Lou Ranieri. And maybe we'll talk about that at some point in a future podcast. That in itself is a, is a half hour conversation. Um, but maybe some thoughts on um, some ways to look at the data that maybe people who have been in the market for 30 or 40 years may not know are out there or may give a different perspective on um, how the markets are performing.
2: Yeah, that's that's a good question. And and something that we, as a group of, of managers, talk about a lot is where we're getting our information. And I think... I don't have a specific source I would say that I go to for the end all be all. I think what's been most helpful for us is is finding those people who have been in the market for 30 years and and getting their perspective. But so say you talk to a a leasing broker and then then you have a conversation with a debt broker and then you have a conversation with the lender and you you sort of take away different things from each conversation and then you sort of uh, temperature check those takeaways to the other to the other people i think that's been the most interesting part of the whole process you know as we had to go online and and go virtual it it created this opportunity to talk to more people that are directly involved in the space and i think people became more available and more accessible because there was less travel and so we've really focused on getting those data points from individuals and then trying to make a make a case that that is the actual data that's that's out there. So going to those data sources, whether it's a co-star or it's uh, a, another industry modeling service that you can sort of gut check those facts that you've gathered from different market participants.
3: So let me put you on the spot again and, and kind of give some um, context to this question. We were talking before we joined the podcast about our musical tastes and uh, Professor Hartzell and I were... Um, Talking about our affinity for the Almond Brothers and, and so forth, so I come at this conversation and this question as you know, an Almond Brothers guy sticking a CD into a Bose, um, putting on Sports Center on my cable TV at night. Right, that's my perspective, and my kids are you know looking at TikTok and cutting the cord and um, taking advantage of all these other things that are out there that I have no either interest or affinity towards. So let's turn that towards the real estate market and what are we missing about future demographic shifts that somebody like me is missing in terms of appeal for residential housing, uh, willingness to go to a mall, desire to move out of big cities. We're kind of opening up the floor to both you and Professor Hartzell to kind of throw out anything because Professor Hartzell of course is surrounded by uh, 20 and 30 year olds uh, all the time at UNC. So let's open the floor and. And tell us what we're missing about um, consumer behavior and anything else that you might see coming down the road. Caroline, this is the young
4: person vibe check of the <laughs> of the interview. And I just wanted to put it on the record that Manus has never asked me this question.
0: <laughs> That's because Joe's an old soul. And, we and also let so me throw this I,
4: I in there too. I feel a little too. bit
3: offended by that. Yeah. Let me throw this because I'm personally offended myself that for Professor Hartzell as well, this is the young person vibe check too. So <laughs> yeah. What's up with yeah. that?
2: It's a good point i think yeah i think there's an app for everything i think that's sort of the the state of today so when we're thinking about restaurants so there we have a local restaurant here that now when you go and sit at your table you scan the qr code with your phone you can place your order totally through your phone they bring it out directly to you individually as it's ready and they bring you the paper check or you sign you pay through the app but if you they bring you the paper check you again scan it with the qr code you put in your credit card information so there's very little interaction with anyone at the restaurant and i think that's a small example but it's all of these sort of uh low touch but high service uh Application. So if you're picking up from a restaurant, you can use swipe by and you can place your order and you park in a certain area and they'll bring it out to your car because they already know which car you have because you put it into the app. So I think it's, it's moving towards that just low touch, high service uh, interaction between people.
3: And does that influence your investing decision? Do you look at certain uh, potentially tenants and say, you know they're kind of a dinosaur tenant. They are not adopting new technology, and as a result, we don't really want to be part of this investment because they are going to lose market share over time. Uh, is that part of the uh, you know the the process for you?
2: Yeah, I think that definitely plays a role in our overall assessment of risk of a project. It's it's interesting. We were talking about this the other day that. So we, you know, late 20s, early 30s, we've only grown up in a work environment that has been a great economy. And so we didn't live through the global financial crisis as a worker. And so our assessment of risk has largely been case study based, or it's been very specific examples. So COVID has essentially been a reassessment or reevaluation of risk when you think about what you wanted in terms of retail. So before it was experiential retail, you want food and beverage, you wanna drive people to your location. And I would say that as we've all seen, it's really service retail that's done so well during this environment. And and the experiential retail will probably be the last to open and and make uh, make a full rebound. Similarly with hotels, we used to say, oh gosh, they're so highly uh, dependent on business travel instead of tourism. And we view that as a really strong positive because Business travel was seen to be so steady. And, and now I think that's that's viewed as more of a negative. And so I think student similarly, the final example is student housing. You know, we also viewed on-camp student housing as a safer bet than off-campus student housing. And as schools have shut down and students have had to move out, that's really not the case anymore. So I think this, the entire experience has really been sort of a, a reevaluation of risk as it relates to the tenants and the ultimate user. So I think all of these different uh, technological advances or changes definitely play a role into that overall assessment of risk.
3: How about you, Professor Hartzell? How about from your uh, point of view? Yeah, it, yeah, obviously, COVID has
1: accelerated the use of technology. I think, and there's no question about that, uh, as Carolyn was saying. And and even for us Allman Brothers fans, it's uh, you know, it's w- even our perspective and behaviors changed. I would say, you know, one one thing that that is also pretty pretty incredible to me. I'm not an Instagram or a Twitter guy, but news travels very very quickly now. the, the circles that my students are involved in and WhatsApp and various other things I don't even know about to that equation. And when something happens, basically everybody knows about that very quickly. And as I said, news travels fast. And, and uh, you know that could be something socially or, or what, what in the business we might call trivial, but it also it relates to really important trends and issues that are going on in real estate markets uh, as, as sort of the the world picks up on things a whole
3: lot quicker. Is there a part of the market that, um, seems to be immune from the the COVID-19 pandemic right now that you wouldn't touch, uh, absent, you know, a 10 cents on the dollar type, uh, price that is uh, a future problem waiting to happen that really, you know, many of these problems are already well-known, you know, hotels and Mm -hmm. shopping malls and so forth. But is there a, a part of the market out there that you're thinking, boy, you know, I'd be taking career risk. If I was in a job right now, if I talk my bosses into going uh, into this segment of the market, or, you know, I couldn't in good conscience, put our investors in a fund in something, um, you know, with prospects that are this bleak. Is there anything that uh, you think our listeners don't know that you guys know?
1: That's a great question, too. You know, I want to just iterate or say very, very uh, solidly that, uh, you know, the primary objective of our our funds are to provide a great educational opportunity for our students. And, uh, you know, as we said earlier, we've been through two cycles now in some sense, and we've had some really, really good educational opportunities that weren't necessarily positive. Uh, you know, and some of them were uh, just post uh, great fin- global financial crisis. And now some of them are we're learning with hospitality assets and some uh, retail assets, you know, good, great lessons that will be uh, useful for a very long period of time, I think. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, as Carolyn said, we're sort of agnostic as to property sector and to locations you know, we tend because of the fund size and type of our investments, we're not likely to be in, you know, a city like New York or rarely will be unless it's a really interesting opportunity. You know, like a cold storage, for example, is something that we've been thinking about. Uh, you know, and same with other large cities. And uh, our opportunities have been in a, on a more tertiary basis where people have been moving. Again, this is not shocking or surprising probably to anybody. And uh, looking at more stealthy, maybe smaller type investments, where there are pockets of opportunity, as opposed to, you know, some some macro uh, opportunistic play.
4: So, <clears throat> just one last question about how you guys run the fund, because it's it's extremely interesting to me, and I'm sure to our listeners. But are you guys mostly, you know, uh, going in as as an LP? With the GP that's running the project or running the deal? Or are you guys also quote unquote GPing some of these things?
1: Uh, yeah, that's a good question too. I think that changes has changed over time as the cycle changes. When we first started, we were looking more at participating in the GP or participating in friends and family deals. Uh, as capital flowed back in a big way back into the industry, we found ourselves being pushed outside of the GP into a more LP framework, which obviously has the uh, negative connotations of a double promote. Um, so I think the focus that Carolyn and the team has has had recently is to try to move, move into that G, GP side more often. And uh, we're actually seeing some opportunities, again, either friends and family type deals within, uh, on the GP side or uh, where we can actually share and a promote and also uh, you know ha- have a what we hope to be a really good investment uh, outcome um, as well as straight on the GP side but Carolyn you want to add something to that
2: no I, I think that's right I think as as different GPS see that the returns to their LPS have been lower they're they're working to sort of create a a stronger, uh, connectivity maybe with those investors and are offering opportunities to get in on the, the GP side and specific deals with the hopes that as, uh, as opportunities pop up down the road, maybe those LPs would be willing to share and, and maybe some riskier, uh, opportunities or, or land, um, pursuit costs.
4: So, uh, I know we're running up on time here. So, uh, tell us, Caroline or professor, um, have you had any four o'clock in the morning calls about a toilet overflowing in a property or a water main bursting or any sort of other, like what's the kind of craziest, uh, property management, and asset management, uh, issue that you've faced. And also maybe as a tack on there, just for my own benefit, how the heck do you find good property managers? You know, when you're going all over the place, all over the country.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll let Dave take that one. I think we we aren't involved in the day-to-day property management. So I can say thankfully I haven't had any 4 a.m. calls about any uh dishwashers overrunning or any, anything like that. But You've uh,
4: never lived, Caroline. You've never I, lived. I
2: haven't. <laughs> I hope I hope to have that opportunity to live in my next role. So we'll see.
1: Yeah, you know, that's, we've seen, we haven't had any specific property property problems like that that we've had to relate to where, you know, a tenant can't get his garage door open after coming out after a late night, you know, <laughs> at three in the morning, which I've heard great stories about. We, we have heard, you know, the calls we might get are more from sponsors, for example, as a senior living sponsor in the midst of COVID, right? Yeah. where we've got uh, exposure now to three assets in the three live funds that we have now where you know it was a call and sometimes with me but hopefully with Carolyn and I or with uh, some of the other managers where you know we've had a problem at, at the at the property you know we, whether it's a tragic you know death or you know some exposure from by staff, and uh sort of here's what we want here's what we plan to do with it. And here's how we're you know gonna use our operation skills and talent to basically be able to uh, get through to the other side. and uh, so so it's more that kind of stuff, and sometimes asking for our advice, but uh, not the direct call from you know somebody who's on the ground uh, at the site, fortunately. Um, which uh, we, we leave to our sponsors and our operators for the moment. That's
4: fun. why asset management
3: is more fun than property management.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and usually more important when we're in a crisis as well.
3: I'll throw one more question out at you guys uh, for each of you. Um, for Professor Hartzell, it's, you know, how would you compare uh, this crisis to the last one? And for Caroline, um, what's the best piece of advice Professor gave you about the last crisis and how it can apply to you know what we're seeing now.
1: Yeah, I'll start with that uh, and try to come up with it with something that's reasonable. The, the The notion of the previous cycles, and again, I've had the blessing of the curse to be around for now. A full cycles starting with uh, tax induced, uh, you know, recession in real estate, particularly in, in the late '80s, early '90s, the dot com bust, the global financial crisis, and now COVID. I think, I think what's interestingly different here is that in those cases, uh, the previous cases, the last three, it was a, uh, it was across the entire industry, right? Uh, capital completely flowed out, arguably at the wrong time of our marketplace, um, which meant liquidity did not exist at all. So there were huge spreads between bid and ask prices. There was no price discovery. And it, and it took a long time before you know, green shoots started to grow out of the ground in any sector, uh, you know, literally years in, in, in those cases. And I think what's different now is that you know, there still seems to be a, a tremendous amount of capital on the sidelines waiting to be invested in assets. Uh, again, maybe and, and we're waiting for some of the troubled assets, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Manis, the hotel industry is, uh, you know, has had some trouble. And I think people there are, you know, the barbarians at the gate, as we used to say, uh, waiting for that shoe to drop so they can find some really good opportunities in that marketplace. And, you know, and, and still pricing, you know, certainly, again, in some of the more troubled sectors, pricing is difficult and hard to find, and there still are some widespreads. But in some sectors, you know, as Carolyn was saying earlier, multifamily, uh, you know, the cap rates are seemingly low, if not lower than they were before the crisis. Office, you know, there's maybe another shoot to drop, but, you know, as Properties are coming back to the market uh, that were pre- either previously on the market or being thought about taking to the market before COVID. They're they're getting pre-COVID prices as well. You know, some retail assets are suffering, but if you're in a well, uh, you know, anchored retail uh, property, those prices are still pretty strong too. So it's 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 hard in a lot of cases to find a COVID discount which i think is is very unique in, in with respect to this cycle than than i would say for the previous three at least that i've uh, experienced
2: and to follow up on that i think One of the biggest things that we talked about in the spring was just the power of communication from a lot of different levels. So one that was communication with our investors, making sure that we were communicating frequent updates on the status of our investments as as we got any information from sponsors, Uh, reaching out to those sponsors much more frequently and, and trying to understand what was going on on a week by week or month by month basis. And then communications in terms of staying in the market. So understanding from a lot of different people within the industry what they were focused on as it relates to portfolio management, trying to take away best practices, trying to understand how to look at something with a critical eye and and maybe a perspective that we hadn't we hadn't considered before. So I think as you're facing disruption in the market, the more that you can communicate with all of the all of the stakeholders, the better that everyone else will be, just because it's, it makes everyone better that, you know, we're communicating efficiently, effectively, and, and timely.
0: Caroline, you'll be in the job market in May, correct?
2: That's right. Yep.
0: So any uh, location you're looking for specifically?
2: I've, I've been focused specifically on New York, which I think I've had a lot of people kind of pause when I say that but I, I think there's a, a, a big case for New York and uh, at least my classmates I think we're all focused on the best opportunities that, that we can find. We all made the decision to, to leave the workforce for two years to to make that career move and so I think we're still prioritizing the best opportunities and I think that for me specifically that's most likely in New York.
0: Good choice. I think you'll,
4: I think you'll be just fine Caroline.
0: thank you thank
2: you guys for having us of
0: course good luck to you with that we'll close this special podcast thank you to our guests Professor Hartzell and Caroline O'Neill from UNC thanks to our producer Keegan St. Anjame join us later this week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you if you have a question send us an email at podcast.trep.com please visit trep.com for more info and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider thank you for listening and stay well
1: All right.